I'd like to draw your attention to the book of Romans. It actually is a very serendipitous, providential, whatever words we'd like to choose. It's just a good thing that Shavuot happens to fall now because we're in Romans chapter 14 and I wanted to focus on this passage. And so if you turn with me there to uh, verse 16, 17, Paul says, Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Messiah in this way, that is, in righteousness, peace, and joy, not being judgmental, look at verse 13, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another, because anyone, back to verse 18, who serves Messiah in this way, is pleasing to God and approved by men. Now Shavuot, Pentecost in the Greek, 50 days after the third day of Passover, which is the feast of, of uh, first fruits, or Shavuot, where we get the word weeks from, Shevaz, the Hebrew word for seven, Shavuot are sevens, and so sevens, sevens of sevens is 49 sevens, plus one gives us the 50 days from the feast of first fruits to Shavuot. And that's what we are observing this weekend. If you followed all of that, um, you're just amazing. Uh, if, you, if you didn't, it's not your fault because I've never been very good with numbers. But the fact of the matter is, 49 days, 50 days after the third day of Passover is Shavuot. And Shavuot is a very fascinating festival, as all the Jewish festivals are, that are recorded in Leviticus chapter 23. Seven major Jewish festivals are found there. And they're broken up into two parts. You have the first four Jewish festivals, which are springtime festivals that initiate the Jewish festival calendar. Those four festivals are Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and today, Shavuot. Those are our first four festivals. They all come in the springtime, and they're all connected to Passover, the celebration of our redemption from Egypt. The remaining three festivals that occur during the fall and winter months would be the uh, Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. Now, Shavuot is a particularly important festival because it's also one of our three pilgrimage festivals. Deuteronomy 16 says all Jewish males are to go up to Jerusalem on Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Passover, Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So it has a particularly important place in Jewish observances. Our latter three festivals occur in the fall and in the winter months, and they bring to a conclusion those festivals. And you notice they're separated by the summer, where there are no festivals. Now, these festivals also have an anticipatory role that they play in terms of what they symbolize. Put another way, they have a prophetic significance. So that the first four festivals, which relate to Passover, which has to do with the redemption of the Jewish people from Egypt, also signifies the coming of Messiah who would provide us with redemption from sin. Put another way, those four festivals speak of the redemptive career of the Messiah of Israel. Put another way, we could say those first four festivals refer to the first coming of our Messiah. 
All of those things are true with regard to these first four festivals. They all relate to Passover because the Feast of Passover reminds us of the blood of the Lamb that is put on the two side doorposts and upper lintel that saved the firstborn male children from the designs of the Egyptians, to, or I should say from God's judgment on the Egyptians that would kill all the firstborn. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, of course, is seven days after the Feast of Passover in which the Jewish people are to not to eat anything that contains yeast. Because when we came out of Egypt, we had to leave in such haste, such quickness, that we did not have enough time to allow the dough to rise. And thus we eat unleavened bread. The third day of Passover is the Feast of First Fruits, because Passover is also during a harvest season in Israel. And thus the first fruit harvest would be offered unto the Lord, and it represented everything that the harvester owned. So when he brought in a portion of it, he was saying to God, you know, this is a portion symbolizing everything I have is yours and I'm grateful for it. When Messiah died on Passover, was entombed during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then rose on the Feast of of First Fruits, Yeshua's resurrection was a representation of all that he signified. So just as the farmer on the Feast of of uh, first fruits offered up a portion representing his whole uh, harvest. So Messiah's resurrection as he presents himself to the Lord represents everyone that is in him as well. Now 49 days later, 50 days later is the feast of Shavuot, the feast of weeks. Now that festival is not dated as the other festivals are. Passover's on the 14th day of Nisan. Feast of Unleavened Bread follows, and the Feast of First Fruits follows within the time frame of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, there's no date assigned to it. It's only stated to occur so many days after Passover. So the rabbis conclude, then the Feast of Shavuot must be connected to Passover. And it must bring a conclusion to Passover. So the rabbi said, what is it that is concluding to Passover? Passover is the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt, and its conclusion occurs on Mount Sinai when the law is given to the people. And now the full, complete redemption of Israel has occurred. They've come out of Israel, they've come out of Egypt, and now they've been given the law, and by, by given the law, they are now wielded into a nation of people for the first time. And thus Passover actually begins with the exodus from Egypt and it concludes with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And thus all of those festivals are connected. Interestingly enough, that when Messiah came in his redemptive career, he dies on Passover. He's resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. And then he tells his disciples, as he had been, to wait for him and to meet him after his death to meet him in Galilee. But the disciples are so distraught, not to mention perhaps thick-headed, that they never leave to go to Galilee. In fact, after his resurrection, the women see the angels at the tomb, and the angels tell the women to go and tell the disciples to meet the Messiah in Galilee. But what do the disciples do? Well, let us go to the tomb to see what's going on here. 
John goes to the tomb, sees the grave cloths laid out as they are, and concludes Messiah has risen. Peter sees the same thing. When he leaves, it says, he was kind of perplexed. He had no idea what happened. He was just confused by what he saw. But they remain in Jerusalem. Again, when the women get to the tomb a second time, Mary particularly, Yeshua himself says to Mary, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. So she tells them that, but they still don't go. In fact, they don't go for over a week. Because when you look at the Gospel of John and Thomas finally shows up with all the other disciples and the Lord makes himself known. You remember Thomas said, unless I stick my hands in his side and, his, and, his, and in his hands, I will not believe. Yeshua shows up. He's in Jerusalem. It's eight days later. And the disciples have still not gone to Galilee. If you look at Luke chapter 24, you'll see that in Luke there were two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Not to Galilee, but to Emmaus at that very same time. Eventually, they do make it to Galilee. But not before Yeshua meets them in Jerusalem. He concludes, I guess they're not getting to Galilee, so I'll just have to meet them where they are. And so he does. And then he tells them, look, meet me in Galilee. So they finally get up to Galilee... He doesn't show up right away, so they are fishing, and while they're fishing, they don't catch anything. And so the Messiah is on the beach, and he says to them, you know, maybe throw your net on the other side. At that point, John says, hey, that's the Lord. Peter says, he now puts on his robe, and he jumps in the water, he swims to shore. And there on the seashore, Messiah already has bread and fish being cooked. At the same time, the disciples are now hauling in this net, and there's 153 fish in that net. But the amazing thing is not the number of fish. The amazing thing is that the net does not break. And thus it signifies that the Lord would provide for his disciples as they serve him. And don't worry about the provision. You will lose nothing of what I will provide for you. And in fact, come on the shore. I've already got stuff cooked. You can just leave the fish right where they are. So the Lord is telling his disciples, if you fulfill my commission and my calling for you, I will provide for all of your needs. But they never left as Messiah told them. But now Messiah tells them, look, go back to Jerusalem. And I can imagine if I was among them, what would you call us up here for? We could have stayed in, in Jerusalem the whole time. That's where we were. He tells them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of my, the gift and the promise of my father. So they head back to Jerusalem. They're in a room in an upper floor of a home. 120 disciples gathered together. And it's there on this occasion that the Spirit of God comes to them, fills them, and creates what we now know as the body of Messiah, the congregation of believers. At that time, Jewish believers. But God's intent was to have Jews and non-Jews dwelling together as believers in Him. Creating what Paul will talk about in Ephesians as this one new man. Which refers to God's calling out from among Jews and Gentiles a new entity. For in the past, God's particular concern was with the people of Israel. But now, in light of the coming of the Spirit of God, no longer will the Lord be particularized with the people of Israel per se, but now He's drawing alongside the people of Israel, Gentiles as well. Beth Ariel is a very unique uh, reflection of what God is doing universally. 
For we have in our midst both Jews and Gentiles gathered together. And it is a marvelous picture of what the Lord is doing all around the world. That's not to say every local expression must have Jews and Gentiles in it. Obviously, if we're in China, and the Lord has called out some people unto Himself, and there happens to be no Chinese Jews that are there, that is still a true, genuine expression, local expression of the body of Messiah. But what the new man refers to is the universality of what God is doing all over the world. In the past, there were very few Gentiles. There were some, but very few. And God's primary focus was on His people Israel. What we are experiencing is, today there are very few Jews. But there is an overwhelming, an overwhelming number of Gentiles that have embraced the Jewish Messiah. That will be for a time, Paul tells us, when the fullness of the Gentiles be come in and then God's particularity is going to focus once again on the Jewish people. In the meantime, we have a job to do to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to the Jew first, and to proclaim the good news as well as to the ends of the earth. As Paul says, or Yeshua says, go into all the ethne. When he says go into all the world, the word world there is not cosmos. He's not talking about get to every geographical location on the world. He's saying go among all the ethne, all the peoples of the world, wherever they might be. And so God's intent is that Jews and Gentiles would come to know Him fully. And so Shavuot is the beginning process of a unique moment in God's plan of the ages. And that's why between the Jewish festivals that refer to the redemptive career of Messiah and the Jewish festivals that look toward the end and conclusion of the Israel's calendar, those summer months are without any festivals whatsoever. Prophetically, we are in that period of those summer months, you might say, between the first and the second coming of Messiah. And it's during this hiatus, perhaps we can refer to it as, that we're seeing God doing a unique thing among both Jews and non-Jews. How is He doing it? He's doing it through the work of the Holy Spirit that He's poured out on His disciples in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago and today that we would be empowered, we would be energized, we would have the gifts so that we could go into the world and be His witnesses to the ends of the earth. Beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That is our commission. That is our task. That is our calling. Wherever we are, whatever stage in life, whatever we do, we are to be His witnesses in His behalf. And that not in our own strength or in our own power, but by the power of the Spirit of God that has been poured out and loosed among us. It is for us to yield unto Him and to manifest His presence. What is really neat in all of this is that the Spirit of God is the energizing element in it all. And so recently as I was studying the life of Messiah, 
reflecting uh, and teaching part of it as we drew that study to a close, I was drawn to the prophet Zechariah. I want to share this with you because I think this is just a phenomenal thing as I was uh, reading through and listening to some of Arnold Fruchtenbaum's material. And it hit me in a fresh new way that I want to share with you. By the way, Arnold will be here June 24th. And so you'll have opportunity to meet him if you never have and to hear from him. Uh, teach from God's word. But in Zechariah chapter 8, Zechariah has a vision. And in that vision, he understands much of it, but he doesn't understand one thing. In the vision, he sees a menorah, a seven-branch menorah like we have here on our table here at Beth Ariel. The menorah was a, is and was a symbol of the Jewish people. And behind the menorah were two olive trees. And from those olive trees, there were two pipes that came down to a bowl. And into the bowl, flowing from the olive trees, through those pipes, were, was oil that was accumulating in the bowl. And from the bowl, there were 49 pipes. Seven pipes per branch. So to each branch on the menorah that he saw in his vision, there were seven pipes from a bowl to the first branch, seven pipes from the bowl to the second and the third, all the way down until you had 49 pipes leading to the seven branches. And the oil from the olive olive trees was going into the bowl, feeding into the menorah, symbolizing Israel. The point was that the Spirit of God would have an impact on the Jewish people in such a way as to bring life, to bring light, to bring joy, to bring righteousness, all of those things, to bring peace in the fullest manner. That is what we can experience today through the Spirit of God's outpouring on Shavuot as recorded in Acts chapter 2. But Zechariah is seeing at the end of time, when Israel is finally united to their God as a nation, that the Spirit of God will be just flowing into her and causing the light of the menorah to shine forth and Israel to become a light to the nations that she was intended to be. But one thing Zechariah did not understand was what are these two olive trees? Who or what do they signify? And that question is never answered for Zechariah. Everything else is answered as I described, but not the two olive trees. And we never read about any olive trees until we get into the Brit Hadashah. So if you look in the book, you don't have to turn, but if you look in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, it's a very interesting passage because there in the middle of this end time judgment that will fall on the world, you read of two witnesses. And those two witnesses are limited in their ministry for Revelation chapter 11 says they minister in Jerusalem. That's where they are. The 144,000 are all over the world. But the two witnesses are limited to Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And when John is told who they are, he is told, these are the two olive trees. It's very interesting because it doesn't just say these are two olive trees. He uses the definite article. These are the two olive trees. And so what two olive trees? Well, there's only two olive trees made reference to in all the Bible. It's Zechariah chapter 8. And so what John is being told is what Zechariah saw 
was that there would come into Israel's history two witnesses that would be the vehicle by which the Spirit of God would bring to life the Jewish people. Well, how so? Now, let me just step back a moment. I say, how so? In order to understand that, you have to know something of the life of Messiah. Because when Yeshua came into the world, he was proclaiming the kingdom of God. Remember Romans chapter 4, the kingdom of 14, the kingdom of God is not eat and drink. It is peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's the only place in Romans where the word kingdom occurs. And it is only used in the epistles maybe 13 times, where it's used over 100 times in the Gospels. But we're talking about God's kingdom, and that kingdom will come when Israel is saved and is made into the nation that Zechariah is seeing as this beautiful, well-lit menorah. So when Messiah came, he proclaimed the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Same words as John the Immerser, John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the Jewish leaders rejected the offer. And so in Matthew chapter 12, you remember that the Jewish leadership reject Yeshua as Messiah. As a result, Yeshua says that the kingdom will not come and judgment will fall on Israel. It falls in 70 AD. But Yeshua also says, no sign will be given unto the people of Israel that I am the Messiah except one. And he says that sign will be the sign of Jonah who's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The sign of Jonah is the sign of resurrection. Yeshua is telling them, the sign of resurrection is the sign I'm giving to Israel that I am truly the Messiah. And it occurs in three instances. The first is the raising of Lazarus. And when Lazarus is raised from the dead, you'll find at the conclusion of that, it says many Jewish people believed. And later, many Jewish people wanted to come and visit with Yeshua and Lazarus. Not because they wanted to see Yeshua so much, but they wanted to see Lazarus. Because what would it be like to see a man who is dead alive? But the raising of Lazarus did not result in the nation repenting of her sin. Although it did result in some in the nation repenting. The second sign of resurrection came when Yeshua himself was raised. But if you look at the end of Matthew's account... The Jewish leaders consort with the Roman guards to lie and say that the disciples stole the body. They rejected the sign of resurrection, even the resurrection of the Messiah himself. But the third sign of resurrection is in Revelation chapter 11, where the two witnesses, the two olive trees, after their ministry for some three and a half years, are killed. And their bodies are left in the street for three days. And there's much joy, the book of Revelation says, chapter 11. They're even sharing gifts that these two witnesses that keep speaking of the coming judgment of God and the need to repent, finally we're rid of them here in the city of Jerusalem. But after three days, it says that they rise up and they ascend into heaven. If you look at the end of the chapter, it says, Then the remnant of Israel believed. And as a result of the ministry of these two witnesses, the remnant in Jerusalem experience the infilling of the Spirit of God that leads to the regenerating power of God 
to take lives that are dead in trespasses and sins and make them alive unto him. And it will be that remnant at the end of that period of judgment that will call on the Lord, which will bring about the Messianic age. In other words, the ministry of these two witnesses, we don't know who they are. I know people speculate Enoch, Elijah, Moses, but they're not named. They're just two individuals that God infuses with a symbol of power that they might do similar things as Elijah and Moses. But at the end of the book of Revelation, or the, of chapter 11, the remnant is saved. And at the end of the period of judgment, because of them who call on the name of the Lord, the kingdom dawns. Why? Because the Spirit of God had filled those two witnesses, energized them, and empowered them. And the result of their ministry was the transformation of the people of Israel. And the kingdom dawns. Paul tells us that the kingdom of God is not about arguing over disputable matters that each of us have opinions about. The Spirit of God shows up not in our particular points of view about much of anything. We're talking about disputable matters. We're not talking about cardinal doctrines and teachings of God's word, such as Messiah is the only way. And I've talked about this a few in the few Sundays before. But with regard to disputable matters, and it's so hard for us to dis- determine those disputable matters because whatever matters we embrace, they are non-negotiable in our eyes. But from God's point of view, they are negotiable. But what he does tell us is the kingdom of God is seen and observed when there is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's not just talking about people doing good deeds, people being in harmony, and people being happy. He's talking about the kind of righteousness, peace, and joy that only the Holy Spirit can produce. Paul has talked about righteousness 35 times, by the way, in the book of Romans. The righteousness he speaks of is the right standing before God. So it starts by acknowledging Messiah as the means to having a right standing before God, the results of which is a transformed life. He tells us it's the peace that comes by the Holy Spirit. What kind of peace is provided by the Holy Spirit? First of all, the scripture speaks about peace with God. That is to say, no longer are we enemies of God. We are at peace with Him. And thus, we are now no longer alienated from Him, but we are united to Him. The peace he's talking about is a peace we can now have with God. That He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Father. And thus there's a sense of harmony between the Lord of the universe and we ourselves. Yeshua prayed that we might be one even as He is one with the Father. That is peace with God. But the book of Philippians chapter 4 speaks about the peace of God. That when we go through trials and tribulations and challenges where we feel that the bottom has fallen out from under us. Paul says we do not have to be anxious for anything. 
but with prayer and supplication. And you know the rest of the verse better than I. We can experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. It is only the Holy Spirit that can produce peace with God. And it is only the Holy Spirit that in troubling times we can experience the peace of God. But then he tells us we are to experience and we are to manifest the joy of the Lord. This is where I think too often we lack. All of us have experienced, if we know Messiah, peace with God. And all of us have been in hard places where we've experienced the peace of God. And all of us know that if we acknowledge the Lord that we have right standing with God, righteousness. But the joy of the Lord can be terribly waning and lacking in our lives. Zechariah says, it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Yeshua's prayer in John chapter 17 is that they might have joy and that it might be full. When the angels heard, the, or I should say the shepherds heard the voice of the angel, he tells them that, there is, that what he is telling them is of great joy. That the Lord has been born in the city of David. And so the big question is, do we exhibit Do we experience the joy of the Lord? Can we and do we truly rejoice? And again, I say rejoice. You know, that's what is manifested by the Spirit of God. Now, I know our service goes a little long sometimes. We're around 1220. We're working on it. But And I am bringing this to a close. But, you know, the reason we worship as long as we do, and, you know, we'd love to cut out things and make things a little tighter because we all have things to do and places to go. I understand all that. But there's also something wonderful about experiencing the joy of God in worship when you're with one another. And how often do we do that? Once a week. And, I, you know, for me... When I'm over here and I'm watching the dancers or I'm listening to the word of God presented or the liturgy led and joined in by the congregation or the worship team playing or the candles being lit, you know, something begins to happen to me. I'm sure it happens to all of us if we would just allow the spirit of God to move in our hearts. And it's not as if I come every morning with a sense of I can't wait to worship God. Sometimes it's like, I want to get home and watch this or that or relax or whatever it might be. I come with all kinds of feelings, just as you do. But I have to tell you, when I stand here and just sort of watch all that is happening, take it in and sort of allow it to speak to my heart, whether I stand or sit or whatever, I am really at peace and I'm really in a place of joy. I really am. And I was going to say when I came up here, it's almost hard sometimes to start praying for the young people in song because my, my cheeks kind of hurt. Because I'm just over here and I'm just like smiling and I'm so excited about what I see, what I hear, and what is being exhibited. And as joyful as I might feel, it's still not enough. And the Lord is much more pleased 
when he sees his children worshiping him. I know what happens. You know, we are here and we observe what's happening. We say, you know, it's really loud today. We need to do something about that. Or are we singing that same song again? You know, or is it going to go on this long again? And we're very critical, disputable matters, right? We're very observant of what's going on. I think sometimes, maybe not all the time, I'm not saying we shouldn't be critical and critique what's happening. We do all the time. The elders, we step back and we say, how do things go? But there's also a moment in all that where you have to say, you know, I don't like what that is, but I'm here to rejoice in the Lord. I'm here to celebrate Him. I'm here to allow His Spirit to have full sway in me because the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not about the disputable issues that we can do with or without. But it's about the Holy Spirit bringing righteousness, peace, and joy into our lives and into our experience. I've, got, I've been going through uh, a very challenging moment in uh, my life over the last month or so. I don't need to go into what it entailed. But you know what the amazing thing is about it? When I come Sundays and I come up to speak. I don't remember those things. They're not on my mind. You know, it's not there. It's sort of like, I know I'm here for the Lord and I focus on him. Then when it's all over and I get back in the car, I said, oh man, I've got to deal with this, 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 and this. But at least for this moment, we can experience what we will experience every moment when we are with him in his kingdom. That he will establish when Messiah returns. But we are not comfortless because his spirit is with us now. Even as he descended at Pentecost. And even as he is present in our midst right at this very moment. Let's pray. Our God and.